All right, welcome everybody to the second episode of the ID podcast. Uh, it is with pleasure that we have today actually three guests rather than two like last time. So again, we have um, Peter Murray with us. We have Jeremy Cantor and a new guest with um, Fiona Davies. So Fiona, welcome to the Thank round. You. And uh, yeah, very excited um, for today. So um, just wanted to say, you know, thank you to everyone who listened to the first episode, to the feedback that you've all given. It's uh, it's all very well received. And I think, you know, the content that we put out was great. I think actually we should maybe put it as a paid podcast because there was some really <laughs> good ideas. But uh, never mind. Okay, so, um, well, I think for today, obviously, a lot, a lot has happened in the past few weeks. There was a great KPMG event in um, on the of man um, that uh, most of us attended and also finds here finds there finds everywhere so um i think in the in the last few weeks and last few days there's been some uh, you know fines being dished out to to a lot of operators so um i guess uh, you know maybe to the round what what do you guys think um i mean especially with uh, with obviously the one that was with a person that spent over 140,000 pounds over 12 days. Uh, I mean, how, I mean, obviously it was way back, um, two years, um, but um, how do you think this would kind of, or this will change the market or has it got no impact on the industry at all? Well, who wants to pick that one up first? Uh, I think, you know, let's face it, finds focused minds and, and a regulator having teeth around these areas is pretty critical to the whole system working. Um, but what's in, I guess what was interesting about that probably falls into your area more than most, Fiona, which is around, you know, it's that failure of AML processes. That particularly, normally nowadays, the fines tend to be around AML processes or safer, responsible gambling, harm minimization. Um, but that, fit, that bit fell clearly into, what was it, 12-day period. Yeah. Uh, you know, they allowed somebody who had... What was interesting, the other point, interesting point was they had multiple accounts across multiple operators, quite how you monitor that one. But certainly it would seem that the triggers and the flags that were in there were, were simply indefensible. Uh, and I'm assuming, you know, let's face it, that operator will not have those same processes now. But I think what it says is, no matter how far back you go, even though the, the landscape now is very different, because that was two years ago, if they weren't right then, you're going to get fined now. Okay, so... Um I mean, Fiona, how how do you see that from your point of view? Because obviously you are specialized um, in exactly that area, identifying if customers uh, can afford to gamble, um, where obviously their money is coming from. So uh, how would you see, how how can we change that in the future so um, these things don't happen? Or is it always going to be like a case by case, let's say, one a year or, or whatsoever? Or? In terms of fines? Yes. I, I think fines are going to just keep coming thick and fast. I think we, we had that massive peak, which was 18 months ago from Malta. Um, I don't think we're going to see big peaks like we did, you know, where you're going to have 10 operators together being fined. But I think consistently the regulator is out there doing what the regulator needs to do, whether that be remote, whether that be land-based. You know, there's we do a lot with, with the guys here in, in London and there's a lot of pressure at the moment on those guys around the uh, the source of wealth and affordability piece. I mean, huge amount of pressure, um, you know, very different to the pressure that the guys are feeling in the remote sector and in a quite a different way because their players are, you know, what I would call true, true whales. So it really does depend. I think if you look at, you know, the experience that we've had with our remote operators the last two years has been huge change you know you've gone from teams working in silos 
you know, small teams of compliance people, fraud teams separate. Now you have big, responsible gaming teams working very closely with compliance, working closely with fraud. I mean, you look at what AA8 did 18 months ago. They pulled their fraud and AML team together, and there's a whole new team there now uh, with a whole new structure, you know, going forward in a different direction. And I think there's some examples of some other operators that are fairly sizable that have had huge restructures in the organisation, bringing in tech, you know, platforms, transaction monitoring, and trying to, you know, their job is the amount of data that's coming in and trying to create like an ecosystem where you can have one view of everything is really difficult. But it is happening, um, and that's kind of what we're seeing. It'll be interesting to get your view, Jeremy, because a lot of this is around... If we look at the M&A activity that's going on, they're suddenly getting four or five brands, four or five different systems, four or five different ways of taking that data, and they're getting caught out for what they did. The, this is the, the M&A and consolidation process is definitely going to be a, a challenge for that, just simply operationally speaking. But the, the, the true principle uh, not to be lost by operators is how to connect the customer journey to the tech that is available uh, in in their hands. And those cases, Roger, that you were uh, presenting as an introduction are uh, a good example of sort of onboarding journey that looks like, uh, hey, how are you doing with your uh, gambling, uh, sir? I'm doing fine, thank you. That was the pun. <laughs> That's um, the interaction, yeah? The, it was very French. Yes. <laughs> the, the customer journey and uh, the technology that is being in, that is intermediating basically between the operator and the different actions of its players are merging into a very uh, um, unique uh, experience. Uh, the, this is also done thanks to the new requ requirements, regulatory requirements from last spring uh, around the age verification upon registration at the end of this month where we will have the affordability checks that are going to become mandatory. We are talking about the UK uh, framework, of course, but this is going to be undoubtedly uh, expanded also to some other jurisdictions that are very closely looking at the UK and imitating most of the, the parts of the regulation. How are the operators going to be able to connect this customer journey, connect this customer journey within multiple brands, which might even have different set of technologies and platforms, just to make things worse. Uh, but how are they connecting all this information and onboarding a player with requirements of full identity check, uh, knowledge, uh, KYC, full affordability, basically said, can a player start to play today or very soon tomorrow in a world where he has not been fully verified from all those aspects, age, address, affordability, social status, social housing, or uh, what else? Yeah. Well, I think, come back to a point we made earlier, which was, I think the focus of, of your customers moved on from your 
back to what we mentioned last time, I found your own sort of database, more, I guess, more towards the sort of services you provide, which is around understanding that affordability thing and that source of wealth, which is where those fines came from, is a really interesting area because that's always been a real challenge for operators and providers into that space. Uh, the other point around where somebody's verified, um, you know, just wasn't acceptable that 72 hours when technology's moved on so that's the right thing to do and they've moved that forward to you have to do as much as you can i think what's not clear and everybody's asking for best practice is what you do at that point that's standard i found you on a database that's great but then where do you add in or layering in that extra information that's out there because the challenge is around affordability i think we're now in an area which is very much like the payday loan sector of a few years ago, which is it's no longer to know, know it's me, it's can I afford it? Well, how do we do that? You know, what data's out there? Has the operator have the data? Do suppliers have the data? But today, can you open a bank account, enter a bank, open a bank account without being verified? And not only identity and age, of course, but also financial status. It's it, it's becoming more and more difficult. Also, it's it's becoming easier with yeah. Challenger Bank. You can you can open an account. I opened an account in a hairdresser the other day. It took me two minutes. I took a picture of my driving license. They zapped it. I said into the phone, "My name is Fiona Davis. I'm opening a da -da -da account straight away." Within two days, I had my card. They didn't ask for what I did for a living. They didn't ask for any core information. It's in fact it's easier to get a bank account than it probably is to have a gambling account. Uh, so what's that? <laughs> but, what, but what does that tell us about our industry when I, banks I think, are more agile than we are? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I mean, again, from my perspective, because uh, I exactly said the point last time is. Um, there are certain industries that I think are going in the right way and there's certain industries I think are making it too easy for fraudsters to... I mean, if I'm a fraudster, right, if it takes Fiona and hairdresser two minutes to open a, um, a bank account and a car drive in two days, uh, you know, a fraudster group would open, I don't know, thousands of bank accounts within within two days uh, and, and they're going to have all the cards. And, and obviously what happens with that, you know, who's going to control this, right? So I think where the gaming industry is going is is definitely in a in the right way because essentially doing the due diligence you know properly you you are you know engaging with your customers it's a it's a totally different conversation so but obviously it's very hard to find that really that you know the, so, the, the so perfect you, middle way you two more than us two will deal with other sectors the, the banking sector financial services sector so where are the gaps in that process if they've decided it's good enough for that really hardly any friction nice and easy what are they doing differently that, that the gaming sector seems not to be I mean, they're not doing anything different as far as I know. I mean, they're, they're going into um, a person verification. They're doing the little gimmick with uh, with biometric. And uh, and obviously, in the background, they're doing some um, address verification with data. But obviously, you know, the banks themselves, they might obviously have that person as a, let's say, you know, ex-customer or whatever. So, um, and they're doing pretty much the, the, the exact same. I mean, I, I don't know how it is on the source of wealth side or uh, how they're doing that, but... Uh, I mean, obviously, the banks, they have to, um, as far as I know, essentially, as, as an example of a digital bank, is uh, they do the document verification, they do a biometrics check, uh, they um, verify the address that the customer has given them, they might ask for a utility bill. I don't know what the, obviously, you know, the thresholds are here. And obviously, uh, the last one will be a PEPs and sanctions check, and that's all they need to do. Um, so... 
I, th- I think what we're, su- we're suffering from in the UK, a regulator that's just got very frustrated with the market, because, uh, and, you, you know, they'll tell you, you know, those regulations have been in place around triggers for a very long time. So why why were they two years ago still going out and finding failings, you know, and not, you know, not, not even doing AML checks. And so I think the regulator got frustrated, especially with the remote operators. And what we're seeing now is, is is a kind of a backlash of that, unfortunately. You know, you've got um you've got a certain sector of the gaming uh marketplace here in the UK doing an absolute standout job with the whole EDD around source of funds, source of wealth, particularly the Mayfield or I mean outstanding. But the pressure they're under now to go and correct, collect pay slips from princes and sheikhs and people that are multi-billionaires. I mean, you, come on, like, you, you don't need to do that. But but even they're being forced to do that because of, of what we've all been through over the last two and a half years with what was uncovered within the remote sector around the total lack of questions being asked. And I think we've got to a place where we're in a little bit of a hole and I think things need to change because source of wealth and source of funds, there's so much data in the market that an operator can collect to have an amazing view of their customer to be able to make a risk assessment. With the very small percentage that might be high risk that, that you know, that you can put some common sense practices around to say there's challenges there, then let's look at the source of funds. But we can't, I think... It, it's, it's, inter- it's, it's it, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, uh, Fiona. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, that amount of data that is available out there for the remote operators uh, around affordability and, and source of wealth, because I see two... Uh, um, Two interesting uh, aspects to that. The first one is that the, the major stakeholder that we're talking about here, the banks, are absolutely absent of the discussion and the whole debate around affordability. Yes, there is so much data within the banks that are processing and allowing the transactions through the transaction code for gaming uh, to their customers. Why wouldn't we we as the remote industry get any cooperation or partnership with the banks in order to know, (laughs) they know better if this player has the access to the funds uh, and proper funds before allowing those uh, gambling transactions. And the the second one is uh, in terms of when you mentioned the EDD, when do the operators uh, need then to uh, to process those checks? Because those checks from those companies that are uh, providing this data have a cost. And processing age verification, ID verification, source of wealth uh, information, social housing, etc., uh, verification has an accumulative cost that that will become a burden that is not viably commercial, not commercially viable uh, for the operators. So, well, I guess for the stakeholders that uh, you know obviously it costs you more to acquire a customer than they actually yeah. would spend with you, right? And you've so seen that in operators pulling out of the UK market because it's just not <sighs> affordable for them to, you know, the regulatory pressure is too great, and so they've decided to focus their efforts elsewhere. And that I think that will happen more and more with the smaller operators. But it, isn't half of the problem we've got where we are is people historically have tried to do everything on the cheap, for want of a better expression. 
you know, I think one of the quotes from the Gambling Commission here in the UK was using better quality data and technology. Because, you know, I saw it in my previous life, which was they would just take whatever it was to tick a box that did that. Well, actually, the value now and around identity is more in the area of uh, layering in affordability, source of wealth. You know, the tick box is great. It does a job. Um, but those things are going to come with a cost. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a challenge for the suppliers into that about how their commercial uh, system works. Well, the, the data and the value of the data uh, around the players was always around the player lifetime value yeah. and never around the player uh, lifetime risk value or something like that, yeah. uh, if we would call it uh, today. And today, the operators need to be able to balance this those two aspects, the potential for risk or harm for the player itself. Those are the customer interaction requirements from the, the gambling commission, but also for the operator, because just like uh, back in the good old days where chargebacks were like risks, internal risks for the operator, today uh, a player that is not capable to afford his gambling is the, the new risk uh, of the operator. Yeah. And I, don't, I don't know where the answer lies for affordability. You know, we've got to look back to payday loans, the sector of how they uh, embraced this challenge, if that's the right expression. Because we have moved on, I think, more into the areas of... I, I'm really interested in the sort of what is out there and what's being used from a source of wealth perspective uh, and what people can access from that, because that falls into those areas. But it is different from demographics of do you live in a part of the country that would say you've either got money or you're financially distressed or and how how reliable and valuable is that information i think there's a lot of um low-cost solutions that can be integrated via apis that can plug into your ecosystem as an operator because they're all now building these these ecosystems in their back offices you know i'm not going to mention the names because it wouldn't be fair but there's lots of software providers out there that are providing these these systems where you can plug in your fraud data your ip data your aml data your id data your transaction data and then you've got this this overall view view of a player and i think there are lots of different data sources out there that can be provided i think uh, operators in the past have had and you know have taken quite a, a, a the easy approach to integrating for their checks they've gone to one supplier that does all a data aggregator that that you know the big the top 10 operators do not go to data aggregators they go to source data providers they understand the data they're providing they understand the value of it and they get the best bang for their buck and i think ongoing i think you'll find more um operators are going to be really understanding the data they're providing and not just buying it and going right tick a box i've got my kyc data not quite sure what's in there but i've got two and two and there we are off we go i think they people will get smarter and i think operators are getting much smarter in the way that they're buying data i think that that'll be one of the things um i think uh, i mean essentially obviously i'm talking about you know lauren the cost of things so uh, i mean there is actually um um, an interesting quote that I uh, took from the KPMG event on the Alamanna and it's from Lindsay Wright and she's from William Hill uh, she's director of sustainability and she said um, operators have to work together to protect their customers and all should want to do this 
So here's one of the things, which I guess is a low cost thing. Why wouldn't all the operators, you know, collaborate together and say, okay, let's let's actually, you know, put something together that makes sense for us all, that will all, uh, you know, be better for our customers, um, you know, save us money. And then at the same time, actually, okay, we're going to do this together um, and, um, and do it. I mean, I know from a GDPR perspective, you know, the people who are like, yeah, enough, yeah. Um, um, obviously the CISO officers, you know, they'll be looking at me saying, no, no, we can't do this. But uh, I mean, obviously, you know, Jeremy, you've obviously you know, been working for a long time in the industry at operators. And obviously, you know, Peter, yourself, you've worked with a lot of operators um, as well in that kind of, you know, terminology. I mean, is there, is there something right now that operators are looking to do together or is there but nothing at all? Th this is going back to the beginning of the conversation around the consolidations and M&A. Companies that are growing and that have a lot of brands have difficulties to do that, to identify which ones are the same uh, customers um, amongst their uh, databases. So this is, this is the first uh, challenge. Before tackling the challenge on, the, on an industry level, and again, this tackling the challenge on an industry level requires all the partners, all the stakeholders on the, the, of the ecosystem of the industry level to work together. This is not just the operators, can put the platform providers and technology providers uh, with that, but the banks and the affiliate uh, uh, ecosystem are two major stakeholders that need to be taken in consideration in order to be able to even discuss this. Yeah. So, Peter, how I mean, how do you how do you think we could we could bring all this together? I think the interesting thing with Lindsay Wright saying that is is what are they doing about it? In, in, you know banding around the C word and collaboration everything that's that's fine but are, what's the practical examples of that happening and if we go back 10 years there was no way operator A would share anything with operator B and I genuinely think if one said to the other that's a problem gambler they'd assume it was a VIP because they were trying to protect them so we are seeing definitely seeing signs of people starting to have conversations but we had a raft of harm minimization projects probably 12 months ago, 18 months, from three or four companies and none of them were talking to each other. So I mentioned this last time, but it, it, so it, it's, what practical things are we doing? Are we sitting down at events and, and talking around it there? Uh, because ultimately she's absolutely right. They, when banks and, and financial services do it, why aren't we doing it? You find that um, here in the UK, they, they, there is an organisation called National Casino Forum and it's all the land-based and they're very good at working together, you know, very, very good at working together and they're working on something at the moment that I probably can't share, but there is, they, they are doing something at the moment. Please the, share. Uh, <laughs> there's also the ECA, so European Casino Association, who we all know, um, you know, and they don't necessarily have, like they have an AML forum within the NCA, uh, National Casino Forum, and that's very useful. Within the ECA, they have their annual um, sort of get-togethers and gatherings, and as a group, that's another great way for those operators. And, you know, that's a diverse bunch of operators you know you've got casinos in the in the nordics down to monte carlo you know all over the place very different uh -huh. and they manage to be able to very openly in a trusted environment share and i think that is lacking in the remote you know we have got the association uh, the remote gaming association but that's yeah. just rebranded and coming back as something else isn't it i'm not quite which sure which is spokesperson for the the sector I agree so we're saying the land-based sector has a far 
better approach to sharing data. Is that that's what you're seeing? Yeah. 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 And there's stuff going on in Malta. I know that um, there's there's uh, there's uh, Manfred Galdez is trying to get together like a, a forum out there for AML within Malta. And I think you know it is everyone has got to come together and try to share ideas because together they achieve a lot more than they are going to be in this silos but it's hard because you know you still got to be commercially sensitive about what's important for your business and it's 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 we all sit in conferences where no one wants to ask a question efforts <laughs> efforts are being done uh, on the operator's side more if you look today less on the casino aspect uh, and rather more on the sports books uh, uh, aspect there are a lot of now sports book integrity sports integrity uh, organizations to help this cooperation of data uh, around the, the games and the information that might uh, um, show any signs of corrupted games or uh, activities. And you do see something that is quite efficient. The question is, on the casino side, because it is really just a, a, a house activity, and a database, and a database that is being fueled by the affiliates that are churning uh, those databases and turning them from one operator to another or from uh, uh, one brand to another. Can we compare those two sorts of cooperations? Uh, Land-based casinos have a lot of territorial uh, specificities, which the remote industry doesn't have. So. It seems very sad, but maybe realistically, this cooperation will happen once the consolidation will be uh, reaching its peak in the in the UK industry, because there will be less smaller operators located uh, offshore and uh, having a UK activity and more bigger. So once you're saying what, once we're down to a handful of few mega companies that's going to be easier for them to share because they're less worried about the competition. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I guess, uh, you know, from our perspective, I mean, we obviously saw um, with the, with the kind of merger deal uh, gone once, uh, obviously um, Flutter and also the stars group. So um, do you think that will help, um, let's say the market, if, if let's say now Flutter and, and, and the stars group combined, we've obviously got a monster with GBC, we've obviously got Kindred, I've got William Hill, we're obviously um, a big, but kind of am um, on their own. So, um, do you think um, it will help the market if we if we have, let's say, five monsters instead of just one and and and, and twenty small first, ones? First and foremost, in the consumer perspective, will consolidation help the market have uh, a better offering that is fairer for uh, the players? No, because less operators, less competition. Less innovation, less, uh, I mean, higher margins for uh, for the operators, both in sports uh, and in uh, casinos. We most probably are going to see the return to players uh, becoming less and less attractive in the remote industry when there will be less and less operators able to access the UK market. But what we have to, to keep in mind uh, around those consolidations is that those are all very big international groups as well, not only focused on UK, some of them reducing even their activity in the UK in favor of what is coming, of course, uh, uh, in the US, but 
other markets that are uh, maybe less restrictive and uh, more open to free competition. And such and as South America and Africa. I yeah, okay. and, and, and those companies are, most of them, public companies that have to respond to shareholders and to financial objectives. The day they will not be satisfied anymore by the cost of what brings them, the, the what the UK market brings them, they still have a lot, a lot around other regulated markets that will keep their reputation still good, but outside the UK and the UK market will become a, a market that will be interesting just for any rich international, maybe Asian or African company that will come just for uh, putting their name on a jersey of a football team. And in, 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 in terms of I think you're right. offering I think for the consumer, this is going to be even worse because they are not even going to target you I think, I think if you were a startup now, would you be targeting the UK? And of course you wouldn't. Uh, absolutely not. not. I mean, if, if it was me, I would yeah. probably go to Mozambique or, or maybe Brazil. Or um, So you'll see the, the big brands say spending millions on the US. Uh, and if you're a mid-tier operator, you're going, I'm never going to be able to compete with that. So I'll, I'll start looking at Brazil or wherever it might be. So the, the mergers and acquisitions, I think it's just a, a natural evolution of any marketplace. I don't care what it is you make or produce. It naturally gets to a point where people start merging to make efficiencies. And in our world, that's generally around um, regulation and compliance. It's really costly, really complex to have 15 jurisdictions. So you're going you're gonna to merge doing that. And when you're looking at your whole different supplier base uh, and all the rules you've got to do, it's just a, a, a natural thing. But I think growth for the sector um, is certainly not going to be here in the but UK. That's why I, I think it's critical for the KYC industry as a whole also to find uh, a proper realistic solution to how to meet the needs of the customer journey from the operators here in this UK environment that is already very mature and developed in terms of regulations. Because if we take that to the US, with the amount of access to credit cards and uh, things like that, this is even going to be both worse and uh, even maybe more interesting in terms of quality of data, like you were saying, Fiona, uh, earlier, because they will have access to a lot of data but also a lot of potential fraud and a lot of potential risk uh, uh, from this spread of, uh, of, of debt, spread of, of uh, the financial situation of the US consumer. And if we don't want to see the same maybe obstacles being repeated in the US model, it, it that, would that's be good that the UK model yeah takes the lead in, into finding a, a commercial balance between offering the right tool, the, the right product and offering, basically for operators and the customer's journey in a viable, uh, commercially viable uh, situation. And this is something that I still don't feel that uh, the industry has achieved. Do you, see, do you see any difference between the areas you're working around source of wealth and let's say in the UK is the US to Asia to wherever are they essentially uh, yes the same? very yeah. different yeah uh, so if you talk about an EDD in the US yeah. you're basically talking about a very basic AML report that costs at best eight dollars right. 
um, EDD to them is is that it's not because they're not been pushed by the regulator to to have that. Um, it's just not a requirement, and everything is led by by, by the. What regulator. would be the cost of an EDD in UK? If you say it's eight dollars in the US, one hundred and fifty. Anything from yeah, sort of one one eighty to seven hundred, depending on the level. Like a remote one would probably be about one hundred and eighty. If you're talking land-based casino, you're looking at about three sixty for an EDD because the type of player is is different, and that and that's on the lower end. You know, when I came into this industry four years ago, it was fifteen hundred pound to do an EDD and we've worked really hard over the last four years to bring the cost down to make the speed of the report quicker and to do all that so it's very different you go to like Singapore Macau very very much on it with regards to EDD because it's very high risk so it just you know we're seeing a ripple effect now across Europe in in you know Holland and France and places like that Spain where that's starting to come in the regulators are starting now to say right we need to know about about your your high end players but it's only just beginning you know everything started here in the UK you know we've learnt from everything that we've done here here in the UK it's been a massive massive learning curve and i think the american market is going to be it's going to be interesting, especially because you've got, you know, illegal dot coms all around America. Because let's not kid ourselves, the Americans gamble; they're just not gambling in a regulated market. So they're all going to come in, and you're going to have all these, you know, big, huge operators from the UK supporting all these land-based casinos in the US, because that's how it's going to pan out. And but they're still going to have to com- compete with dot com who are unregulated can do what they want because the so the I think the American stuff and I know I, we're here to talk about AML KYC they're going to have a bigger challenge I think dealing with the uh, unregulated market so um I mean we obviously now now drifted across the pond and we kind of predicted that in in, in the first episode I mean um obviously hearing on that so uh, I mean there's a question to all of you guys um do you think um the US for for gambling and betting will be will be a huge success or will it is it kind of all hot air and uh, yeah just uh, it's gonna uh, be nothing. First of all, of course, it will be a huge success. It will be uh, a huge success uh, in the sports book, in the casino, maybe less in the poker. I think the hype is uh, probably down uh, in the poker. It's going to be more uh, of a niche uh, product. But uh, sports and casino, uh, absolutely, absolutely, no doubt. I think the, the lifting of the PASPA ban changed changed everything. So the, the four or five years leading up to that, there was all talk and a bit of excitement, but it was all poker, it was all casino. But effectively where we are now is all bets are off. So everybody's throwing millions of dollars in, uh, trying to get the brand off. But I think the US has already, the story's already written. I think the, the, for, the partnerships that were forged four or five years ago of the US being the market, effectively the marketing brand, backed up by a technology partner that we would regard as an operator, they've already got their feet on the ground. I think all we'll see there is potentially one big American organization buying a European organization. I think it's a sort of logical next step for, for me personally in the M&A activity. But I think if you're an operator, and certainly a mid-tier operator now, 
I wouldn't be going going anywhere near the US. You haven't got the financial clout to do it. You know, when you've got to have a, was it Pennsylvania was $10 million to get a license? You know, great if you're the technology partner, you're not the one paying it. But if you're a mid-tier operator, you, you're going to go looking around and go, and I'll keep well clear of the US. I'll let my competition spend millions of dollars getting up to speed there. And I'll go after these emerging markets, whether that be uh, the raft of EU companies that are coming, countries that are coming, uh, or you're going after places like LATAM uh, in Africa. Yeah, I, I did. Um, I did a bit of analysis on the Flutter. Um, oh, don't come here with facts. <laughs> figures uh, for last year, and um, obviously the EBITDA was significant in their online. Their retail decent, but that's probably drives their brand. The US was down 15 million, but that's because they're investing. And but who you know who has got pockets as deep as them to invest? That tells you you're not going to get like you've just said. It's going to be the big boys that are going to go in there because yeah. no one else can afford to. Okay, so so um, um, so for now, the advice to mid-end small tier operators: focus on Europe. Yeah, yeah, go, yeah, go, 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 go to Greece. Like go to Greece. It's going to be only two million. Go to Sweden. It's seven hundred thousand. Go to the UK. It costs you more than two hundred pounds per EDD per player. Yeah. <laughs> don't go to the US where it costs yeah. you ten million. Yes, yeah, so I guess it's uh, put it in dollars for an EDD check. What? Where would you do it? Exactly. Yes, yeah, so I guess it's a little bit like with the New York uh, taxi driver's license. If you if you read about it, so um, a few years ago, the um, the essentially the license to be a taxi driver in New York cost over one million dollars. Within a few years, it went down massively because obviously Uber came on the scene, and now a lot of taxi drivers are obviously complaining. Oh, well, I'm going a minute. You know, three and a half years ago, I paid a million. Paying out for a London cab. You know, the investment you have to do in that. I, I just think it, it, it's it, the deal's done in the states, and it doesn't matter which. Uh, state regulates next and let's face it it won't be all of them because the various politics that are in play but those relationships the, the other one that changed that was FanDuel um, and DraftKings who opened up that uh, you know Paddy's were straight in on the FanDuel deal but that's already set Is really I can't see anybody coming in and going we're the next big thing um, play this back to me in two years if somebody has but everybody else should be concentrating on something else. I mean, as you rightly said, you know, they have all the customer data, they have a, they have an existing customer base they could just go out to and uh, and off they go. I mean, obviously, once once the regulation are set in each of the states. Um, and I mean, um, again, I, I going back into, to, into the technology bit. So obviously, the US market is a very big and uh, uncomplicated um, thing, and especially on the on the document side of things. So, I mean, as you know, um, only around 20% of all the Americans have actually a passport. So um, that's only 20% of the people. And each of the states, they have different types of documents. So uh, some of the states, they even have, you know, valid driving licenses that date back to 1940s, and there's about 20 different types of driving licenses. So my question is to you, so obviously now going to markets, but also existing markets like the UK, if it's if it's obviously, let's say, you know, the whole of Europe, um, the UK might not be in, in, in that spectrum um, soon. But, um, um, you know, do you think it's just enough if we do document verification to just do like a MRZ checksum check? Um, is it just enough to do a little bit of, uh, I'm going to look at the picture, is it the same person or... Uh, no, 
is the answer to that. <laughs> nice and simple. Next. And how, you know, again, we're back to technologies moved on and what companies can do around document verification, liveness testing. That, that whole area of biometrics AI is where the value is, I think, if you're an operator. It's who can provide that. Back to, I think we talked about it last time around the customer journey. Customers are not going to put up with the way it's been done previously. They are used to being able to use their phone to be able to order a car or, uh, you know, get get goods from elsewhere. Um, so I think the, the direct question of just MOS headquarters, absolutely no, that's never going to fly. But that technology around documents and, and, and facial recognition and biometrics, absolutely, I think that's the, the way forward, tied in with layering in the sort of really valuable stuff around whether it be PEPs or sanctions, a source of wealth, um, those things in that area there is the really valuable bit, I think, from an operator's perspective uh, of what identity looks like. From my point of view, Jeremy, from yours? I think this, uh, I'm, I'm less expert in, uh, in this area uh, of, the, of the documents, but uh, in, with, with the US, basically, this shows that this is going to become, uh, uh, of course, a cost of importance. We see compliance companies like GeoComply acquiring also their uh, ID uh, company. Really and, uh, and, and absolutely, this is because they have been at a sort of forefront of innovation or maybe not innovation, but technological solution mm. in the US that was completely regarded as what is this technology blocking uh, cellular uh, uh, points, etc. We already know how to block IPs. Well, I, I remember when they started 10 years ago, the whole European industry looked at them as, yeah, why? And you know what? Who still, needs that? Still do. They're GeoComply are a really interesting one because when I spent my time there, it was the, op the regulators were obsessed with that technology and I'm yeah. sat there going, well, that's not identity. It was where you are, not who you are. But they've cleaned that market. They've got about 100% of the market. And they are looking and going, right, well, how do I layer in that? And they've gone out and partnered up. And, and, and today, the combination of all those data points yeah. uh, lead to even something that is bigger, because who do we think uh, about uh, when we talk about convergence of those data points? Usually it's Apple, Facebook, Google, etc. And Apple is also pretty much starting to... Uh, show its cards, I would say, in the gaming uh, environment. It's becoming legit in the US. We might see uh, and, and we, we might see them make some more uh, bolder moves today in terms of aggregation of the activity. Customer journey, again, uh, single view of the customer. They have the single view of the customer journey. Once the products will be available and this uh, aggregation of technologies along the customer journey will be accepted and a, a normal experience in the US, I believe that we will see Apple also move inside that uh, territory. Uh, it will bring uh, definitely some uh, very interesting questions, not around just GDPR and, and privacy, but liability and responsibility in front of the ownership or the management, the handling of those uh, player data. Will will Apple become, in that case, liable for an AML assessment by the UKGC or any uh, gaming regulator? Yeah. Well, it's in, you, you mentioned 
sort of at the start that who's going to be the moderator of this, the banks, yeah. and, and uh, you know, ultimately the real disruptor is if an Apple comes into that market because nobody knows what you do. Uh, more Google, than, maybe. More than, yep. Uh, what do they do? No, but you're absolutely right. The people who we will interact. I mean, with. Google have probably more personal data than anyone else yeah. has, and. I mean, obviously, they have, uh, you know, YouTube added to that. So, you know, add even more data to that. Um, I mean, there's obviously, you know, some companies and, and you know, we didn't want to name drop. But then again, it's a little bit unfair not to not to not to not na- na- <laughs> name drop them. But um, I mean, if you look at if you look at companies like an example, like um, you know, emailage, right, you know, they do, you know, really great work when it comes to, you know, checking actually, um, you know, the history of email addresses. Have they been, uh, you know, connected to any frauds whatsoever? And uh, if you think about it, there's, n- there's no one who does what you know what they are doing and i think it's great when you get you know someone like that again a disruptor innovator like like do you comply you know 10 years ago everyone looked at them oh you know what What's what the are they doing and now you know uh, um you know when when you speak to people in the industry they say you made it show well i don't know if that's going to help me well i mean obviously i guess the email address is the whole kind of uh, you know holds even more data than than the banks maybe do uh, but then it's layering in stuff. We sort of come full circle back to the, you know, how much information you've got. That's pretty, in my view, pretty valuable uh, email addresses, how we generally communicate to start with that and mobile data. is the other one, cell phone data. Uh, but the point you made earlier is how you pull that all together. You're an operator with all this wealth of data coming out there. Then how do you make sense of it? So whether it's that that data well, aggregate, hundreds uh, business intelligence people, yeah, you, you could uh, do it. Data it's, analysts, it's a tad expensive. Uh, so surely technology must be. We know where we're going with this. There's that yeah. technology there, whether it be an aggregator of all of that or one particular one like an Apple who will come in and deliver that. That's where I think the future is going to be, because all of those things are really valuable in their own right but also a bit useless in their own right because it doesn't solve the problem of understanding your customer. So I'm not saying knowing your but email address is not important. It's interesting because even if we don't want to, to bring it to philosophical levels or things like that, but so it really definitely raises the, the, the question of what is the role of an operator? Is an operator uh, a, a tank of uh, data points of uh, a user or is an operator like what it used to be until not long ago, the curator of an experience of game content and uh, activities that it's offering to a supermarket, to call it uh, more vulgar, um, to, to its players. So we are shifting the focus, all those regulatory requirements are shifting the focus from the role of the operator to become the entertainer, from being the entertainer to become the... The liable for all the data uh, of the of its uh, users and consumers. I mean, I think it has a little bit to do with uh, because we're saying, uh, you know, with regulators, they they you know sometimes they don't know what the market even holds and stuff like that. So I think uh, kind of the operators are now taking a position where they're becoming a hybrid of okay, we're going to help you how to regulate, but at the same time, and I, I need to do what I'm doing. I mean. Is is um, you know we spoke about self-regulation again last time, um, and and obviously you know for operators you know doing this doing this doing this doing this. So, in the future, is it even is it even going to make money for the operator to to uh, um, you know when obviously everything's shifting towards them? Are they going to make any money because you know they have to do this, they have to do that? Um, Absolutely. The the question is, what is the future for the small and medium operators today, yeah. which is. Probably the question in any industry that is facing a lot of consolidation uh, movements. 
But I think this is a, a very relevant question. There's so much like bad press, isn't there? Like iPlayer had like three documentaries last month about, you know, gambling operators not being responsible and the harm that it does within the sector. Um, and it was quite interesting at the Isle of Man uh, summit. And I don't know who it was that said, but like, I think what operators have got to do, and I think many are, they put the customer in the centre of the universe and they have to care and protect that customer because that customer's life journey is the lifeblood of their business. So I think it might have been Dan Vore, I think, because he 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 did some he, he did some pretty good points around yeah, that. Yeah, was I it? Yeah. And I, I but I think, you know, if, if they can get across that they care about the player and they're asking these questions because they they don't want them to play responsibly and then that player then trusts that brand and then they stay with them because at the moment what you have is like there was uh, you know so many uh, lovely operators that I work with knee-jerk reaction 18 months ago where they had to you know go and ask lots of questions and they lost a lot of their players because because they went from you know from not doing that much then having to do quite a lot and in that time they lost a lot of their valuable players but it's because they were learning about how you start asking those questions and how you can be um keep that player happy but keep them retained in a responsible way and i think it's hard and i think you know we're a new industry you know this industry wasn't here what 10 years ago um you know yeah Certainly not as it is now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I think we're that pain as we're going through that pain, and I think I think putting the customer in the in the middle of it, I think is really important, and just changing the mindset. Well, do you yes. look at you mentioned Lindsay Wright earlier, and, and and people of that ilk. When they say that, you generally think they mean it. The challenge for the industry is for everybody to mean it, and we all know there's people who won't. But if certainly the big brands step up, uh, and and then that becomes sort of standard operation. I absolutely agree that customer-centric, customer-first approach to things is the only way for sustainability and trust. And whilst we might throw those two words around a lot, I think in three or four years' time, five years, that's going to be what makes a difference. If you want a genuine brand differentiator, is do you trust brand data? A, do the right things with your data. Uh, B, treat you like a VIP at all times. Uh, and, and then look after you in, in that customer lifecycle. That five years down the line is what's going to make a break companies. Well, maybe not treat them like a VIP at all time. That's the problem for the gaming uh, commission. It is true that it's important to treat the players as VIP, but this is this has become the problem today. They don't, the, the, the regulators are suspicious of good treatment like a VIP of the players if the player didn't pass all the checks all the affordability, all the KYC, etc. And this is something that used to be the, the brand uh, USP and uh, the brand uh, differentiation. But today, the brand differentiation is not going to be possible if, if the marketing re relationship, everyone, trust becomes mandatory, it's fine. It's basics of business. It's it's weird that we get to that point that most of the brands were not trusted. But that's that's a failure. That was not the strategy. So still, what will be the, the, the future of differentiation where there is going to be more and more consolidation, 
white label model, as we discussed also during this uh, Isle of Man uh, e-gaming summit, is uh, in danger, and probably for good reasons, because there has not been enough control on what it pro it properly means operationally speaking. But what is the future for small and medium businesses in the gaming world? And therefore, what is the future for differentiation of the offering to the consumer? And that's why I think that this is not very, uh, a very optimistic uh, vision for the future of consumer fairness and, um, and offering in this industry. Yeah, so Fiona, uh, just mentioned it before on the point that um, obviously, you know, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, live documentaries about, you know, that gambling is obviously, you know, shattering lives and obviously making the whole world bad. Um, so, you know, do you think, you know, sometimes operators are unfairly criticized and again, for the disruptors, for the innovators like the mid tier and obviously, you know, the low tier kind of operators that, you know, they're going to be out of business because there's just, uh, you know, like this whole, um, well, as a, as I call it, gambling bashing going on on TV, um, and um, every uh, well politician is um, is trying to get involved to get some sort of clout, um, because they're obviously you know being the heroes of of uh, of whatever. But but um, yeah, I mean, do you think they're being unfairly criticised right now? You know, yes and no. I guess is the answer to that. I think that some of the some of the situations the industry's found itself in. Uh, have been absolutely our own fault. You know, whether it's uh, doing your KYC or your EDD at the back end of it, uh, not treating the customer fairly at the start. Um, but I think those are gone. I think those are a, a thing of a couple of years ago. I don't think it's in anybody's interest to do that. And then the rest of it is just because, uh, and we've mentioned this before, the political nature of what we do. We're just an easy political football to, to have any politician who wants to have a bit of a pop at something and get yeah. themselves on the news, yeah, gambling, just, gambling, just gambling, yeah. yeah, just have a go at gambling. And there's a couple of high-profile, prominent people out there at the moment who they want to be on the news, just have a pop at the gambling sector. Um, but I still think we have to be aware that some of this is our own fault uh, and raising the bar and doing the right thing and treating I, the customer fairly. I, I, I think this has been, uh, or this is still uh, ongoing, uh, a good reality check to use a compliance word of the industry, for the industry. Because at the end of the day, affordability is not only for the consumers and for the players, it's also for the operators, the stakeholders. Can you afford to take responsibility and to be liable for what you're going to, to offer to your consumers, to your end users, to your players in this market? You better have the shoulders financially. Uh, you better have the pockets. Uh, in any market, but also in terms of responsibility and accountability and how far you're going to be able to protect uh, your consumers and offer them uh, a fair business. This is, at the end of the day, uh, almost a business 101 reality check. Can, can you afford offering the business, the, the products that you're offering to your players? Show us that you're responsible. If you know what you think is... is um uh, is it kind of? I mean, you know, because you you obviously have to deal with some really, let's say, urgent requests, right, Fiona? Less, less so than a year ago, to be honest, which is a good thing. Um, I think what where we're at at the moment is is the is the entail of everything that happened two and a half three years ago, and and it and you know that's where we're at now. And I think it will. I think operators are 
being responsible in the main. I think they do care about their customers. And I think there were a lot of risk takers and, you know, you're running a commercial organisation over, you know, and until the regulator is going to say, this is how it is, you know, and they go out and they look under the bonnet, then some people will take that risk. And that, that is what's happened. But that is not where we're at now. Um, and I, I just think this whole affordability thing, though, is going to be super interesting over the next six months because I don't know how it's going to pan out. You know, what's being asked of operators is pretty excruciating. And, you know, at what point do they make an assumption on someone's affordability? You know, you could earn 150 grand a year and at the end of the month not have anything in the bank account. It doesn't mean say you haven't got any money, it just means you like spending it. Like at what point does affordability start and end? I don't think anyone's got the answers for that. And this is going to be an interesting thing over the over the next six yeah, months. I absolutely agree with that. You know, you've said that having three cars is a, is a sign that you, you're going to be all right. Well, you know, where I grew up, every council house has three cars if your kids are over 18. <laughs> they just do, because everybody's yeah, got I mean, a car. So what, what it's, it's what's relevant. There's so much data out there. Uh, that you, What does it mean? Yeah, so and I think the affordability back to the, the payday loan sector is, is is the key issue. You can you can tell the regulators to have this and use best practice, but cheapest, what does it mean? You know, just look at look at the salary that now a big salary you might be on, but spend it all. Yeah. Like yeah, 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 yeah exactly. You know, but then again we go back, you know, how, how do we as as gambling operators, how how should they know that um, customer A has let's say an income of uh, let's say over a hundred thousand pounds per year, but how do they then know that he has um, 10 things on finance uh, being five cars uh, that he bought for his uh, five ex-wives and uh, and is spending all of his money? So I, I am convinced that at the end of the, uh, not of the day, because but this will happen uh, quite as fast as a day, it will be the consumer's, the player's responsibility to prove his level of uh, net available uh, income to his operators before he will be allowed to play more than certain thresholds. The Gaming Commission has started to identify statistics of average available income. Mm -hmm. It will come very soon. It's the end of the prescriptive uh, regulation in the UK, but it will come very soon that they will say, okay, available income in the UK on average is 1,000 or even 500 pounds uh, per month, and I think I am already optimistic. Um, no player for one brand, especially that we know that there are always three, four, five brands yeah. in parallel being used, allowed. is allowed yeah. to lose more than uh, 100 pounds well, a month, deposit, unless he proves. Uh, I mean, I guess it goes back to, okay, are we going to do this at deposit or are we going to go with the, at the losses, right? Because yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think it would be irresponsible to let someone who only has, let's say, £500 left over for the month to let them deposit £500 because, you know, the money's there. He, he's not, you know, it's not going to go away. So and let's not talk about joining up online uh, bookmakers with remote and, you know, what you can do in a bookmaker via what can you do online. I mean, it's not a level playing field for everyone. And Germany, I think it's Germany, is it now? You can't spend more than €10,000. Uh, you've got to write a letter in to ask to spend more money. They've changed the regulations. I think it's one of the Nord Nordics as well, but you're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, if, with, if we take yeah, your I mean, instance of average salary too. being, say, 
I think the last ad was 24, 25,000 pounds a year in the UK is the average salary. So are they then going to take what the average house price is? So what's the average mortgage? What's yeah. the average bill for food? What's the average bill? So it's almost like you would have to do when you're applying for a mortgage. Is the gambling commission or the regulator going to say, right, that means the disposable income for your average person is £500 a month. See, I don't think we need to go that far. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, it, it's I, not I, a question if we need. Yeah. It's, a, it's right? a question if we expect the, the regulators to bring us uh, to this to this situation. But maybe the industry needs to get together and say, why don't we all agree that we need to take control of this and we need to ask our players, because at the end of the day, we're dealing with adults. So ask that adult, how much are you prepared to lose a month play, playing uh, you know, sports bet and whatever it is what are you prepared the responsibility is on them because they're an adult then you can do your basic checks and check you know how old is that person where they live what their job is and take so, so you take a joint responsibility because all the responsibility can't be on the operator it yeah. always has to be with the person yeah, and and it's 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 not it's not <laughs> no but I agree all adults all should be able but that's not going to happen the regulator is never going to say, you know, I've, me personally, I'm, I'm, I've got responsibility for that because what happens if it is a problem gambler or somebody's over? If I over mortgage myself and overcommit myself financially, that that is actually down to me. Correct, but that's not the way the regulator looks at it. Mm. Has has the person giving you that money done enough checks on there? Now, not clearly, people will get around that. But I do think we're going to end up at a point where they're going to put an arbitrary figure before you really have to start providing stuff. Uh, or information along how much you spend every month. I can't see how we're at this rate and the way it's going. I can't see how we avoid it. It's wrong, in my opinion. I said, again, that affordable, this affordability thing is frightening because I don't know what it's going to mean for operators. Well, are we going to... That's a quote you want to use right yeah, there. I think yeah, that yeah. 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 yeah and, I've seen, and, and I think, uh, let's say, New Year, uh, probably end of January, when we see uh, the next... Uh, you know, throwing, uh, you know, throwing finds out memes, um, you know, coming out and, and me posting them on Twitter. But, um, but interestingly, and, on, on that, yeah, could you go at the end of January, and, you've got to lower yeah. your limits because everybody's skint. Yeah. We're all paying our bills. The regulator's going, you know, you can gamble a lot in July, but I'll tell you what, you can't gamble in January when the bills are coming. Yeah, see, and, the, and that's another thing, right? So, so, so why are you giving the, uh, you know, the operators, obviously, as, as we know now, I guess, from the whole conversation, uh, the operators are the almighty... Um, I don't know how to call them. They're, they have to do everything uh, themselves, I guess, and have to maybe, I don't know, regulate themselves in uh, in a few years as well. But, um, well, you know. I think that was a debate last time. That's never... Yeah, I know. It's never going to happen because, you know, there's too much, obviously, you know, politics involved and we all love politics. Um, we all love Brexit. We we we, uh, we all. He's love determined ID. to get this Brexit thing. <laughs> we, uh, we're discuss and Brexit. we all love ID podcasts. So, so um, well, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, in this case, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up for today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And again, we could have probably talked for another four or five hours. So, um, and and also um, that be said, I'm definitely gonna bring back Fiona. Um, for that, for, that, for that another podcast, I mean, for another podcast because um, 
and and next time we're gonna we're gonna come extra prepared. I'm I'm gonna put my glasses on, um, get my head down, read all about Brexit uh, in the Daily Mail. Let's do a, uh, well, tell well, you what, let's, not, but, let's do a Brexit um, special. I don't know, <laughs> seriously, think we do it. Yeah. It impacts the industry. Yeah, yeah, I think we, we should, you should yeah. put some. Yeah, never mind. We'll, 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 we'll compete with Brexit <laughs> cast. <laughs> Uh, we'll do what we all do. I don't know yeah, what it means. Yeah. All right. So, uh, no, thanks so much, guys. Um, uh, as I said, it was an absolute pleasure. And Thank you very much, I'll Roger. wish you a very nice week, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank, Thank you. you. So, if you like the content, uh, and if you like the um, episode, please be sure to leave a like, to um, follow us on Spotify, and also to subscribe on YouTube. And we're looking forward to having you next time.